first of all, I'm gonna admit, I don't like this. Um, this thing, I don't like being up here this, with this view. I think it's weird. And you know, one of the things that Sanctuary has always said is, you know, try it, it might work. Um, we tried it, I don't think it worked. <laughs> but you know what, just on principle, I'm gonna like stick it out and this week and next, we're still gonna be in our, our little box up here. Um, and then we won't be and it'll be fine. Today is the third Sunday of Advent. Today is the Sunday of joy. It's also known as Gaudet Sunday. Gaudet is this old Latin phrase that means rejoice. Today, Gaudet or joy seems to fit in just fine along the other themes of Advent, the themes of hope, the themes of peace, the themes of love, joy just kind of makes sense. But historically, the traditional themes of Advent were not hope, peace, joy, and love. They were death, judgment, heaven, and hell. So one of the rhythms that we see emerge pretty early on in the traditions of the church calendar is to provide a kind of reprieve from whatever the main theme of the season might be. So the church in all of its wisdom decided that if we're gonna be talking about death and judgment and hell, we might as well have a little break in there somewhere to talk about something uplifting to kind of get our minds off of things for a minute. This is why in the season of Lent, Sundays are not fasting days, Sundays are feast days. So in the middle of this long stretch of fasting, we break. Advent was known as the season of last things. Again, death, judgment, heaven, and hell. So in the middle of preparing for these last things, the things of death, the things of judgment, we pause today to remember that we are called to somehow, in some way, rejoice at the day of last things and not to dismay on that day. Still, it seems like there is much to dismay over and from what we know of human history, this has always been so, it will always be so until the last day when Christ sets all things to rights. This is why Fleming Rutledge says, Advent is the easiest season to preach in. Because what other season does the church have than the season of Advent? Advent, she says, is about a world in darkness and it is not at all difficult to show that this world is a world of darkness. 21 years ago in 2002, Fleming Rutledge was preaching a sermon on the third Sunday of Advent at the National Cathedral Church of St. Peter and St. Paul in Washington, DC. This is just a little over a year after 9-11. The US was on the brink of war with Iraq and on that third Sunday of Advent, on that Sunday of joy, she opened with this story. Here is an Advent story, she said. It comes from a recent New York Times article about the just released audio tape from the South Tower of the World Trade Center. The voices of the firefighters are clearly heard. 
The article describes the calm, professional way that the men were going about their job. It quotes a lot of what they were saying as they climbed from floor to floor, calling for specific tools, calling for more men, describing the conditions in their technical shorthand. The reporter writes, nested in the code language of the tape are powerful human dramas. Some of the firefighters we know climbed as high as the sky lobby of the South Tower on the 78th floor. Scores of people, many of them severely injured, had been stuck there for nearly an hour. Those who escaped later described the lobby as a desolate vista of the dead, the dying and the trapped. At 9.48 a.m., Fire Chief Oreo J. Palmer arrived with men from Ladder Company 15. The reporter asks us to imagine what it must have meant to the people who had been desperately waiting for rescue when they saw before them a fire chief, a fire marshal, and their men. In their final two minutes, they could behold the promise of deliverance. At 9.50 a.m., as we know, the South Tower collapsed. How is this an Advent story? Fleming Rutledge says, because the promise and the death blow arrived at the same time. The realization of the rescue and the catastrophe collided in one moment. This is Advent. The moment of our destruction is also the moment of our deliverance. Still, somehow, knowing that is the reality, we have to whittle from all of that a sense of joy. We have to mine from all of this some sense of goodness and hope in Christ's return. This is, I think, where we get off track in Advent. We assume that this season of preparation is primarily about preparing to reflect on this baby being born. But Advent isn't about pretending that we're transported back 2,000 years to the birth of Jesus. Advent is about preparing for the day that ends all days. And one of the markers of that preparation of following faithfully as disciples of Jesus is that our lives are marked by joy. If we're honest, I don't think we've given much thought to what it is to live a joyful life. If I'm honest, when I imagine people who I consider to be joyful, they're not necessarily the kind of people that I wanna be around all that often. But joy is different than just being perpetually optimistic. And it's also not a shallow denial of all the bad things happening in the world. Joy isn't even about being happy. Joy is grounded and rooted in expectation. Which means joy isn't dependent upon your circumstances, but on what you ultimately believe to be true about God and the world he created. Joy is actually as much about what is not happening to you as it is about what is happening to you. Rowan Williams says it like this, Christian joy doesn't take away the reality or threat of risk or suffering. 
It is offered to the world not to guarantee a permanently happy society in the sense of a society free from tension or pain or disappointment, but to affirm that whatever happens in the unpredictable world, sometimes wonderfully, sometimes horribly unpredictable, there is a deeper level of reality, a world within the world where love and reconciliation are ceaselessly at work, a world with which contact can be made so that we are able to live honestly and courageously with the challenges constantly thrown at us. This is not how we're used to thinking about joy. Joy, he's saying, is about living in a world within the world where love and reconciliation are ceaselessly at work. But as it turns out, love and reconciliation are hard. Living honestly, courageously, living with integrity in ways that actually look like good news to the poor and the stranger, to the oppressed and oppressors alike, that is hard work. It means if joy is about living in the midst of reconciliation, then joy is inevitably bound up with forgiveness. Joy means living in such a way that you are representing a new world that other people would very much like to be a part of. And as Rowan Williams says, being part of that new world, that new humanity, isn't a humanity that is always going to be successful always in control of things, but it's a humanity that can reach out its hand from the depths of chaos to be touched by the hand of God. That is joy. Joy is that expectation, that hope, that patience, that no matter what happens, my life is bound up in the endless mystery of a God who loves me and loves my neighbor and will one day straighten all of this mess out. Again, that doesn't mean joy is about being an eternal optimist. Leslie Newbegin has this great line where he says, I am neither an optimist nor a pessimist. Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. He's saying your joy isn't dependent upon you being happy. And your joy isn't dashed when your life is in the suck. You are part of a deeper reality than all of that. It's the reality of resurrection. This is what we heard in our gospel reading this morning. This is maybe my favorite line of all of scripture. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. I love that line. I don't know why. There's something so simple about it, so basic, that there was a man who was sent by God, who could have been any man, and he came as a witness to testify to the light so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, the text says, but he came to testify to the light. He himself was not the light. That means his joy wasn't situational or dependent on his own feelings, something he was creating. He was testifying to the light, the light of hope, the light of God's own life that was outside of himself, but also coming to him. This is why John can be a symbol of joy for us. He was the one who lived his whole life 
in expectation, his whole life in hope, in trusting that a better thing was about to happen, a better world was about to be born. You know what I haven't been able to get out of my head all week? Uh, Some of you remember Oral Roberts singing, something good is going to happen to you. And do you remember how that song ends? Something good is going to happen to you. Jesus of Nazareth is passing your way. That was the hope that John lived from. That was the animating joy of John's life, living in expectation that something good was going to happen to him because someone was gonna come his way. He was expecting that at any day, something good was going to come walking through that wilderness. A goodness that he was not worthy, he said, to stoop down and untie its sandals. And it was that goodness that he announced, that he laid his hands on, that he dunked that goodness into the waters of the Jordan so that all of us who are baptized can experience that same goodness. This is who we are. We are Advent people. We are the ones waiting in faithful, hopeful expectation that we know as joy. And we wait and we watch and we look expectantly for that goodness in the world and in one another because every time we can recognize that goodness coming to us, anytime we see it and name it for what it is, Christ is coming to us. God's own life is coming to us. In whatever kind of desert, whatever kind of wilderness you are in, if you can recognize that goodness coming to you, it is Christ's own life. I'm not suggesting this is easy. How long, cry the prophets. And I think in order for us to wait and to wait faithfully and to wait with expectation and hope, we also have to learn patience. In James 5, starting in verse 7, he tells us, Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. Being patient in our joy means learning to live like the farmer who waits. This means joy isn't about technique. Joy isn't a trick for ordering your life. Joy isn't a mechanism. Joy is yielding to the nature of things. This is what makes a farmer a good farmer, is knowing how things work, when the autumn rains will come, when the spring rains will happen, being faithful to do the work he's been given to do, and then simply submitting to the nature of things, acknowledging that most of this work is out of our control. The farmer knows how things work, and then he's patient with them. And if we are going to be people who experience joy, true joy, It's going to be because we are submitted to the nature of the kingdom. We don't try to get God's kingdom to bend to our will. We're just faithful with what we have been given to do. We till the soil. We plant the seeds. We keep the rabbits out. 
and we wait with expectant joy that God is going to do what God is going to do. What's difficult is waiting for and hoping for and expecting a new world to break into this world when so much evidence is stacked against that hope. Again, Rowan Williams says, ultimately, joy is a gift from God, a mysterious gift. It doesn't depend on our own efforts or on our trying to make ourselves happy. Like God's grace, joy is something that God gives us. We experience it not by working at it, but by opening ourselves to it, expecting it, making room for it in our lives. This is why some of the most joyful people that we know are people who carve out time in their lives for silence and for reflection. People who have made room to be able to receive the gift of joy whenever and wherever and however it comes to them. These people who make space for silence in their lives, they are those who make space for the mystery of God to happen in them. They are expectant. They are waiting again for God to do what only God can do. And that waiting is sheer joy because God is faithful. I told Reverend Allie this week that first she came after queso. And then she's labeling sanctuary as an emo church. And I said, I don't know why you're trying to divide the body of Christ. But I think there is something true in that assessment. Not that we're an emo church, but that who we are as a community, not, not because we are a melancholy people, we're not, but because we have been able to be people who can tell the truth about the state of things. Life is hard. The world is a disaster. Just this week, I visited one of our parishioners in the ICU who has septic pneumonia. They thought they were gonna lose him late Monday night. Yesterday, a friend of mine from high school, young, healthy, 34-year-old married guy with a one-year-old daughter, had a heart attack. He coded eight times, and they told him, your heart's done. He's on a transplant list, waiting for a new heart. My mother-in-law this week lost one of her best friends. This week, Israeli soldiers mistakenly killed three Israeli hostages. That doesn't make sense. Two Palestinian women, a mother and a daughter in a church in Gaza were killed by a sniper. Another Israeli hostage died while in captivity by Hamas. Globally, over two billion people Two billion people don't have access to clean and safe drinking water. In the Democratic Republic of the Congo, over six million people have been slaughtered. The world is not great. That doesn't mean that we aren't people of patient joy people who are determined to believe that something good is going to happen because God is happening and his goodness is more good than all of the goodness that we can imagine. 
We opened with our service this morning by reminding you that the very fact that you are breathing, that you have life, that you are here today, means that God is keeping you and holding you in existence. And what we trust and what we hope is that it may not be today and it may not be tomorrow and it may not be the next day, but we are called to be people of expectant hope, trusting that the deepest reality isn't what we see on the news. The deepest reality isn't what we idly scroll past on social media. The deepest reality is that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Resurrection is the deepest reality. All things made new is the deepest, most true thing. Do you remember what happens to John not too long after this? <laughs> after he baptizes Jesus, he finds himself in prison. And he sends word to Jesus. He says, are you really the Messiah? Are you sure it's you? Should we be looking for someone else? Because for John, Jesus stepping into the world did not immediately translate into good news for him. When God doesn't show up in our lives the way we expect, we start asking the same kinds of questions. Should we be looking for something else, for someone else? Fleming Rutledge again offers this great reminder, the signs of the kingdom remain hidden. The signs were hidden in Jesus' time, she says, and they are hidden now. Do you remember what Jesus says back to John? He sends word back to John in prison, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised and the poor have good news preached to them. Even we have to acknowledge looking back, that as Jesus says this to John, these things, the blind seeing, the lame walking, the lepers being cleansed, they were only taking place in a few places to a few people. They remained hidden signs. Not all the blind see, not all the lame walk, not all the dead are raised, not all the lepers are cleansed but the kingdom keeps working this way in hidden, unexpected places. That's why every time we come to this table, we declare that mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Because we remember that we are people who are part of a different world, a different hope, a different reality. And whether we live in that world joyfully or despairingly will determine whether or not other people want to live in that world with us. Whether other people will glimpse that deeper reality. So we can be people of joy. We can be because we know that no matter what happens, God's light is breaking in. And like John, we're simply testifying to that light. And then we can say with the psalmist, 
weeping may linger for the night, but joy comes with the morning. Amen.